This is the moment to get a real feeling of job satisfaction. I'm the doctor, I can save the universe using a kettle and some string. And look at me, I'm wearing a vegetable. Hello, faithful listener, and welcome to A Kettle and Some String, where we take a random trip through all the doctor's adventures in time and space. I'm Dave, and my guest today, I'm delighted to welcome a fellow who lives in the same parts as me, and we've met. <laughs> it's Mr. Mark Doddick. How are you doing, Mark? Hello, I am good. Hi, Dave. Thank you very much for letting me join you this evening. Um, yeah. You're you're we're we're Edinburgh Hoovians. Yes, Edinburgh Hoovians. There's oh. a couple of us out there. there. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's the, yeah. It's so bizarre, sort of having all these people that I've known on Twitter that suddenly, like, you just live on the other side of town. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> being able to talk to people about Doctor Who. And that night uh, we met up was really fun. Where we just we met at the big giraffes, as it's called, yes. outside uh-huh. the Omni Centre in Edinburgh, <laughs> and uh, just. Yeah, it's like why have we, as you say, why have we never met before? Ah, oh, it's bizarre. I think it's a, yeah. I think I probably got most of it down to the fact that I'm totally socially incompetent. But after that, once I've broken <laughs> the ice with somebody, it's fine. <laughs> Not at all. So, where is the randomizer? What stories the randomizer sent us to today? Um. Well, we're going back to 1977. Um, for the Sunmakers, of all things. Yes, the middle of season 15, so near the middle of Tom Baker's time, and it's regarded as the cheap season by a lot of people, mm-hmm. but I don't think this one looks that cheap, but we'll go into that. But, yeah. uh, yes, we've been, we're in going to Pluto. Uh-huh. Which it, is, does it count as a planet these days? <laughs> yeah, is it a dwarf planet, I think it's uh-huh. now, yeah. I think. Uh-huh. Which is usually a big lump of ice as it is at the moment, but in this uh-huh. story it's became this thriving community. Yeah, they've warmed it up a little bit. How many? Seven <laughs> suns? Six Magropo- six or seven Megropolises? Is, is, is? I can't remember whether it's six or oh, seven. Yeah. A few anyway. Oh, yes. Oh, a sun for every city, for every Megropolis anyway. <laughs> and apparently this one's quite interesting. So Robert Holmes had left, or thought he had left. Uh-huh. But um, unfortunately he didn't, because Anthony Reid said, well, you know, can you... Sp- well, Graham Williams actually, sorry, said, can you stay around for another six months? Well, Anthony Reid trails you. And he agreed. So Philip Churchcliffe left, but Robert Holmes had to hang on a bit longer before he could have a rest. Uh, and he developed a, the, an idea for a four-parter about a colonial power playing on Britain's imperial past. And he was reading a scientific journal, as you do, <laughs> The Iron Sun. And so he got this idea from that about man-made stars and how these colonial powers would get their power, basically. And the Doctor would get caught up in an anti-colonial rebellion by freedom fighters seeking independence. So that was the core sort of thing he was trying to write. It's great. I mean, the, the thing is, like, Bob Holmes at that stage, there's a lot of stuff on record about him being tired and, um, how, you know, having worked really hard on the show for a long time. So he joined 
1974 and trailed Terence Dix for a long yeah. time. Um, and then three and a half seasons of Doctor Who being full-time script editor. And his first seasons, what, seasons 12 and 13 were done concurrently. Um, so he, he had a lot on his plate. But as a parting commission, well, he basically commissioned himself. He does the Sunmakers, and it's still something that's lively and full of ideas and brilliant dialogue. Um, yeah, he may have, he he may have felt tired behind the scenes, but the product, the stuff that he's coming out with, is still pretty brilliant. You can't beat a Robert Holmes dialogue, is what I think. I think he's the oh, best yeah. writing Doctor Who. Sorry, even Russell T Davies and so on, they're great as we know, but. I think Holmes is, for me, is the best oh. writer Doctor Who's ever had. I just love him. Oh, yeah, you get some very juicy dialogue and it's usually very ripe. And you can see that most stories that he scripted, the actors really react and respond well to the dialogues yeah. they're given and they thrive on that. Um, and this is an example. The Sunmakers is definitely a story where the actors are all just having a bit of a... They're having a whale of a time. They're really oh, they're immersed in it. Oh, <laughs> it's brilliant. Around the same time, of course, the famous story is that he was having a battle with the Inland Revenue mm. uh, because of his taxation of his earnings as a freelance writer. And so he thought what he'd do is take the villains and reflect those tax officials and show the absurd regulations of the tax official as comic effects. So we get all this brilliance like the P45 corridor and so on. Mm. And, this. Um, and so it changed... The story changed from an anti-colonial story of a to a full satire on tax in the financial world. So you've got things like a plutocracy is a society controlled by a small minority of the wealthiest people. So because he saw that word, he thought, well, where will I set it? Oh, Pluto would be a good place to go. <laughs> uh, Graham Williams thought, though, that was a bit worried because he thought the story could reflect left-wing indoctrination. I think he was worried a bit over the top, really. I don't yeah, much. I don't think it's too heavy-handed in its approach. I don't think Bob Holmes is going to be quite as righteous as some other writers might be. He's he's having a laugh and he's just having a gentle dig. I wouldn't say yeah. it's. I I don't I don't think he's outright trying to convert the masses to any sort of <laughs> political belief here. But um, <laughs> he's he's just having he's enjoying having a you know, at the expense of the inland revenue and apparently the BBC as well. He's having a few digs at the um, bureaucracy and all the different levels of management and paperwork and all that nonsense that being a grown-up's all about. Yeah, it's... Being an adult, it's certainly... I think we can both say we've seen some of this stuff <laughs> in, the, in the working world. Certainly I have oh, yeah. bureaucracy and just nonsense, really. I'm not oh, going absolutely. any more than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> the collector's race was originally going to be called the usurers, which apparently is a Latin term for one who lends money at an exorbitant rate. But Graham Williams didn't allow this to be the name of the villain. He said, no, I can't have this. And he overruled both Robert Holmes and Pennant Rodops, the director, to change it to the Usirens. Yeah, so and it it's, was... not, it's not a huge leap from usurers <laughs> no. to usurians. Um, but he, it's still obvious enough what he was getting at. <laughs> yeah. And Leela was apparently considered briefly to get killed off in this, which would have been interesting. Yeah, I, it's, I would have been really intrigued by that. That's, that's awfully dark for an era of the show that 
was being encouraged to be a bit lighter. <laughs> yeah, especially if she's been killed in that steamer. As we'll get to that, that would have been a that right would have been some death. Pretty bleak. Or the bit towards the end when she charges into the safe. Would that have been when it pulled when they polished her off? That would have been a bit sort of offhand and yeah, was... a bit more something a bit more deserving. She certainly needs something more deserving than what she actually got. Which yeah. is just rubbish. But that's <laughs> yeah. a story for another time. Oh, yes. um, and Robert Holmes was so clever that he knew that, obviously, in real life, Tom Baker and Louise Jameson had this friction because Tom was being really distant. And so he deliberately put in the story that they'd be separated for large amounts. That's quite a, quite a canny move on, on on his part, I think, doing that. I think, I think their working relationship had, start, had started to soften by this stage, but it's still yeah. quite a... When you've got two leads who are both very strong characters and very strong personalities, I think Louise Jameson is such a strong actor and perhaps to a degree Tom Baker was maybe intimidated by her. I think that might explain an element of the I think you're awkwardness right. in their relationship. Because um, he and Elizabeth Sladen, I think both being from Liverpool um, and having, the sh- having a shared background, a bit of a shared heritage, had more in common. Uh, whereas Louise Jameson comes from you know a different part of the country, and um, I think she had a bit more of a she had more of a middle class upper uh, you know upbringing, um, whereas Tom Baker was pretty poorest of the poor Liverpool lad. Um, hmm. I think I think there was there was probably some jealousy and perhaps a little awkwardness about her experience and ability because she's a she's a really strong actress. She's she's been, she's one of the few. Yeah regulars who went who's gone on to have lead roles in things and continues to have lead roles in things um she's a she's she, yeah, she's probably one of the best actresses doctor who's ever had the good fortune to come across yeah and she was able to do it wearing hardly anything in the program exactly it's, um, <laughs> I, th- I think for some people yes they might they might not see beyond what little she is wearing <laughs> but if you, if you can look, yeah, yes exactly but if you can look beyond her um leather apparel <laughs> what there is of it uh, there's a stunning performance all the time she's never absolutely I don't think she absolutely. ever undersells a moment she is the, the conviction she is leela she absolutely lives and breathes and thinks this character and has given it so much thought um you can you can see her brain working when she's trying you know she's she's, absolutely she's always committed. acting yeah. she's always acting there's never a moment where she's in the background and you think oh she's switched off not oh, at all. She's yeah. always there in the in the moment, as you say, and she's Lula. She's she just embodies the character. Oh yeah, she's, yeah. Oh, can't can't praise her highly enough. So Pennant Roberts got the script, and as he did in a couple of stories, he'd done a couple of changes. He made the character of Marn a woman, and he cast against the collector was described as being enormous. So he totally inverted that and decides to go for someone who was a bit more. Petite. Hmm. I quite like some of the the choices that Pennant Roberts makes, especially the fact that he tries to get more more actresses work um, at a time where, you know, particularly, I mean, one of the few criticisms I would level at Bob Holmes is that he always wrote scripts that were entirely populated by men. That is true, yeah. Or the one female companion. Um, And it was because he had this sort of... uh, I think it was Mel went well Mel went well meant that he didn't like having to portray 
violence being inflicted upon women. He thought it was easier to digest if you had men fighting. He yeah. didn't like the concept of you know, a woman being tortured or things like that, even though he still did it in some of his scripts with the companions, but he didn't like to inflict on too many women. So he would pretty much just write completely male casts. And the fact that Pennant Roberts comes in and, I mean, obviously Bob Holmes isn't the only writer you can level this at, but so many writers of that era just populate their scripts almost entirely with men. And in comes Pennant Roberts going, there's absolutely nothing to say that this character could be, couldn't be a woman. So why don't we just cast a woman in this instance? So I feel every, pretty much every one of his stories, he does that. And kudos to him because he gets a lot of flack as a director, but certainly when it comes to casting, he's, he was always very, pretty good, more or less. Yeah, I think he casts very well in his stories. And yeah, he's, it enriches the stories of having more women in them. I mean, that is one thing of the Hinchcliffe era that I've noticed uh, being older now is um, that, yeah, it's very male-dominated. Uh -huh. Or every female character that's in the stories is polyreporting. Or, uh -huh. you know, like the stuff that Sarah Jane goes through for a start is just, <laughs> I mean, ridiculous, really, when you think about it, how many mm -hmm. tortures and kidnappings and everything that happens. So she goes through hell. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's, <laughs> she's, she's a bit... She's so unfortunate that she's... She can be a proactive character, but as her time goes on in the series, Sarah Jane becomes less so, whereas you've got Leela, who screams once in her whole time in the Doctor Who, but to be fair, yeah. she's being eaten by a giant rat, so who yeah, wouldn't? so it's justified. <laughs> you know, I'm, she, she's very rarely the weak and feeble woman. She's The only reason that she's ever struggling or screaming is because she's literally tied down in a steamer or she's being gnawed on by a giant rat. Um, those pretty much anybody would scream under those circumstances. You've got Richard Leach in this as well, who plays uh, the gatherer, of course. Mm -hmm. um, he had deafness. Um, yeah. So he was doing less acting at the time, and but he was able to overcome it with lip reading. Mm -hmm. But he got on very well with Baker, as did Michael Keaton. And um, in fact, he interviewed uh, Tom Baker for one... He had he done medical journals he contributed to, because he was a doctor, I believe. Not, can't remember what off, but um, so Tom Baker contributed to that, which I'd like to know where that journal is. I would love to read uh, Tom Baker being interviewed by a medical journal. Yeah. That's quite fun. Um, <laughs> and it was also a reunion for Louise Jameson with Adrian Burgess, who played Beat, because they had both appeared in Rep in St Andrews and had shared a flat. Oh, that's quite nice, actually. I think it's a... Uh, I, 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 you can see that a lot of the actors in this are enjoying each other's company so it's probably yeah. probably quite a, quite a good pennant roberts again we're sort of going back to his ability to pull together a good cast he always gets a good company there always seems to be a, a, a good vibe coming from the actors and actresses in this in in his serials and um, they always they tend to talk highly of the experience as well when they've done a doctor who with him so yeah which always... is a sign of a director that was really respected yeah absolutely tom typical tom he said, uh, apparently, that the script was rubbish and rewrote it with the cast, but then they worked it back to the original. The cast loved the script. In fact, Louise Jameson calls it her favourite story, as we know, because um, Leela has a really strong role in this. I mean, she's probably because she is separated from the Doctor. She doesn't have to do the hmm. normal, oh, what's that Doctor? Who's this Doctor? She's able to have her own adventure on her own. But Pennant Roberts did note that Baker was more demanding since he was last on the show. Because, of course, by this time, Tom was fully in 
this is I'm the main star of this show, and you better believe it. Oh yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting. This sort of the 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 thing I love about being a Doctor Who fan is that so much of the history is documented, and all these people that have been interviewed over the years, the th- the the little insights that you get. So you have directors like Pennant Roberts or Michael Bryant who maybe go a year or 18 months without directing Tom Baker and they go oh yeah he was lovely he was brilliant he was so engaging and he was really invested in the part oh and the next time I worked with him he was actually becoming a lot more demanding and forceful with his ideas and his it was a very sort of telling I think some people are diplomatic about it but other people are not necessarily diplomatic about it in interviews Um, and I think Tom Baker probably more inclined to admit that he was difficult these days. I think um, now he is, yeah. I think yeah. he admits it now. Uh-huh. But it was always for the good of the show. I don't think, you know, it's... I think a lot of people, when they talk about him, they say that he would never he would never really argue with other actors. It would be aimed at technical crew or, you know, or directors or, you know, people that were maybe spoiling a scene or... um. Take, trying to sap the fun out of things by being technical when they were wanting to yeah. act. Um, he wanted to make sure that everybody, himself especially, was getting <laughs> the benefit of, you know, being seen and being, you know, they're at the forefront. They're the ones that have got to, you know, that are going to be the the person that you stop in the street. You're going to have to comment. Tom's going to get the feedback. People wouldn't recognise Pennant Roberts on the street and say, oh, that was a duff shot, wasn't it? But they might say, yeah. oh, Tom, you looked ridiculous last week when they shot you from that angle in the console room. Um, so it's a, 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 a... I can understand. I think if you stay with the role that long and you've got perhaps... You become proprietarial. That's yeah. it. I can't even say the word. Proprietarial. Uh-huh. Is that the word? Pro- yeah. Proprietorial. That's the word. Yes. Uh-huh. I think you would. And I think Tom Baker had a bit of a fragile ego and because he would be he would engage with members of the public and people would say to him, oh, that was brilliant or that was not so great or I want to see more of this, I want to see more of that. He was so invested in the part that he would feed that in. He would go into the rehearsal room and suggest it. And Maybe it was a duff idea, maybe it wasn't. And some directors were willing enough to give him the opportunity to give it a try. Others, not so much. Um, and I think if you know your job and you like doing what you're doing, you might get a bit pissed off or narked if... Somebody says, no, I don't like your idea. Thank you very much. We'll just stick with what we've got in the script. Yeah, I mean, from his point of view, a different director's coming in every couple of weeks. Mm. They have different ideas. And probably after a time he gets sort of fed up with that, I would think. You would think um, he might go, oh, here we go. Here's another director with a big, zany idea. Isn't he going to work? Because I've seen this before. Uh-huh. I can imagine he gets a bit tired. Into, uh, he doesn't get tired of the, being the doctor, but he gets tired, I think, of the production and the same going through the same rigmarole I think is the impression I get from oh yeah and I think he's somebody with a very active mind as well and if you're recording in a studio there's a lot of downtime so in between scenes you're going to be thinking oh maybe I could do something else with this or you you'll get bored and your mind will wander and you see some of the little clip it the little clips of studio footage that still exist of Tom he's constantly his mind is ticking over and he's trying to think of things he's a very active inventive person and I think as much for his own amusement as anything he wants to keep some sort of sense of momentum and energy in what he's yeah. doing it's a double-edged sword for the director unfortunately though because obviously like from their perspective they want to get it done and they're probably thinking 
oh god what's he going to suggest now what what can we not just get on with it so i can imagine you can sense the friction um but i suspect with pennant roberts that i think he was very open to tom's ideas and in fact put them in in fact there's a scene that we'll come to in the last episode which wasn't in the script at all and was totally mm-hmm. tom i suspect tom's idea i think it's on paper as the cast's idea but i suspect it was tom's idea um but we'll get to that Graham Williams wanted to keep the cost down on this one um, because, of course, this season is just hell for the inflation and that's where it gets this cheapness, season 15. And I think in some cases it is justified because <laughs> there is quite a lot of cheapness in this season. Um, so he wanted to film all of this one in the studio, but Pennant Roberts said, look, you know, we could that tobacco factory, we could film a lot more out there than originally we were going to. And that's what they did. So they filmed a lot more at the this tobacco factory and... While they were filming there, Tom Baker was getting mobbed for autographs. It was a family sports day during filming. And he said that if there's any workers' kids who haven't even managed to get an autograph, just write to me at the BBC and I'll make sure you get one. Hmm. So he was great with the kids. He always was, Tom. Oh, yeah. I think he, I think he saw the value in, in respect in the audience. You wouldn't want to be disappointed by meeting the doctor. And I think he appreciated no. the value of that. He was... If if you're some kid's hero, you don't let them down. You've got yeah. to be you've got to you've got to be on your best behavior, and and yeah, not spoil a child's imagination or dreams by being a crotchety bugger if you bump into them <laughs> in the street or. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so so the Sunmakers was transmitted November to December nineteen seventy seven. We've got Tom Baker as the Doctor. We've got Louise Jameson as Leela. We've got John Leeson as K-9, of course. And in the guest cast, amongst them, is Richard Leach as Gatherer Heed. He was in the Dam Busters. Yeah, I was going to... I, this, this is a shame on me that I haven't researched as much as I wanted to. I wanted to go and find out a bit more about what some of these other... These, some of the actors in this had been in, because he had uh, quite a respected theatre career behind him. Yeah, he um, Hadn't done a lot of TV and was persuaded into doing this um, and seems to have quite a good time with it as well and you've got oh Henry... he's loving this he's loving this the, the dialogue yeah. he gets is just <laughs> he's it's so funny he was in the Avengers as well but I think everyone was in this oh I'm sure he would have been yeah I think it, I think that was one of the things I was trying to place where I'd seen his face in a something else um, yeah he'll have done an Avengers everybody did an Avengers <laughs> We've got Henry Wolfe as the collector. Now, I remember him in Steptoe and Son as hmm. he was uh, Frankie Barra, almost like the god... Well, I think he was nicknamed the godfather of Shepherd's Bush. So he was <laughs> in an episode where um, the Seven Samurai, which was where Steptoe had his pals as, like, they, they watched Kung Fu films, and so the seven of them at the end are fighting Frankie Barra's mob in the, in the boneyard, which was quite <laughs> funny. And then he also turned up in the film, uh, Set on Sunride Again, with the Greyhound. And he was the same character. He came back in that. So I remember him in that. And he was he's superb in that. But he was also, of course, in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh. See, I was trying to think what might have I... What would I maybe have seen him in? Ah, well, I've seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show, so... <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if he's even got a line in that, but he's, oh. he's in the background. He's one of the... Oh, one of the revelers. Yes. Oh. Oh, yeah. that's good. Yeah, and he he had he was another really respected character actor of that era. Um, I think he only passed away relatively recently. 
And it's yeah, it's 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 amazing. You sort of you think um Doctor Who obviously gained a reputation for getting really starry casting as time progressed. Um but it was always still you know, you're still getting like the stature, you're getting good respected actors doing these parts, coming in and doing their bit. Um it's always I always find find it quite fascinating, you know, watching Doctor Who and spotting actors and doing that oh my god they were in this they were in that um oh i do that all the time yeah i think we all do that (laughs) oh yeah i think we've got there's a sort of a rolodex in every who fan's brain of oh i know that name from somewhere i know that face from somewhere we've got david rollins as bisham who was in reggie perrin so fallen rise original perrin although i can't when i look this up i remember who he was but at the moment it's escaped me who he plays in it but he was in it. <laughs> Joanna Scott as Marn. It goes for it, doesn't change. You've got you've got Marn and it's Veet, it's Adrienne Burgess. Yes. She's given she goes really goes for it, doesn't she? She's fully yeah, she's brilliant. She's full of beans in this. Right? Oh, oh yes. Uh, I want those skins. She's really just <laughs> well, well, Roy McCready is Cordo, which oh. I, I was looking up, but I hadn't seen anything else that he'd been in. Oh, but yes. probably focus shouting at this. Oh, but it was in such oh. famous series, and it's because I've not watched many famous series as I've found <laughs> out doing this. <laughs> um, William Simons is Mandrill, who was in Heartbeat, of course, famously later on. Yeah, Ventress. It was. So, it took me years to fathom. Like somebody said, "Oh yeah, he was in Heartbeat for years." I'm going, "Was he? Was he?" <laughs> I just never put two and two together. And then somebody went, "Oh, he was Ventress, BC Ventress." And I'm like. No, surely not. But yeah, he is. And it's so weird to see he's, you know, sometimes when you see an actor in a totally different role, um, instead of being the sort of PC plod type who just wanted a cup of tea and sitting in it behind his desk all day, you've got him being this mean and threatening presence. And he's, you know, he's got he's got his whole gang and he's going to brand people and torture them. And oh gosh, yeah. yeah it's what, his whip. Very, and his whip, exactly, yeah. It's for for a year of Doctor Who, where they were trying to tone down the violence, you've got a man who's got a whip and he's prepared to use it, and then he's got people that he wants to get, you know, we'll brand them, oh, we'll skin them alive. Bloody hell! And um, Michael Keaton is Gowdry, because uh, he of course went on to be big in Blake Seven, yeah. that series that I still haven't watched yet. Sorry, Sighard, but I still haven't watched an episode. <laughs> and um, he also popped up in his standards as a vicar many years later as well. Oh yeah, bless him. On and off for a long time, having to put up with Doc Cotton. He was also in a Doctor Who audio, an eighth Doctor one. The, was it oh, Twilight it? Killed Them? Yes, I was going to say The Creed of the Cromen, and that's not it. It's a couple of releases before that. I have them sort of, I can see the pic, I can see the cover in my head. It's like a cave mouth. Yes, um, yeah, that one. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, when did you first see this one and what was your initial thought? I remember really liking it. It came out very late in the run of VHSs in, I think it was 2001. So I was 13 or 14, if I can remember how to do maths. Um, And I I just remember really enjoying it because it was an era of the show that didn't get talked an awful lot about in Doctor Who magazine. And if it did, it was usually a negative comment. So I didn't have a lot of preconceptions about this particular season and the majority of it hadn't been out on VHS at that point. 
um, Underworld had come out. I think Invasion of Time had come out just shortly before this. The Invisible Enemy um, and Horror of Fang Rock, they all came out in very quick succession at the the tail end end of the VHS range. So I I had no idea what season 15 was like because I didn't have Image of the Fendal on VHS and that was the only one that was out for a long, long time. But I remember, I remember really enjoying the Sunmakers. I think as I've got a bit older, maybe it's not as sophisticated, um, and you start to see some of the creakier bits. But it's still, it's quite a solid story, and it moves along quite quickly. Having revisited it for this, I hadn't watched it for a few years, um, and it moves along. It's got quite a good pace about it. I suddenly, I got you know, I was halfway through it, and I suddenly thought, oh, geez, that's that's the end part two already. Probably not worth. I don't think it is worthy of quite this the criticism it gets, but it's not. It's not as if it's Underworld. That one always comes down <laughs> pretty low ranking. Oh, I can't those... wait to do that one when oh. that one comes out. That'll be interesting. getting somebody to do that. Will be probably the first <laughs> problem. Um, <laughs> this one, yeah, it, this was a UK gold job. So I used to always go. Um, anyone who's listened to an episode of this will go here. We go again because I tell this story. It seems quite regularly. <laughs> Um, but I always got my granddad's on a Sunday and tape it off UK Gold if it was one I didn't have because he had the cable and I didn't. Um, and so it was 94. I'd seen Fendal because I had the, the VHS Fendal and I really didn't like this one when I first saw it. I thought it looked really cheap. But I, I, I didn't get at all the sophistication of the dialogue or anything. I just thought it seemed to be a lot of walking around and mm-hmm. just, yeah, I, I didn't pull this one out very often and watch it. I remember that being a kid. It was, I just, it just done nothing for me. It didn't have any of the the gothic horror of Fendal, you know. I think I think it's a it's a, season fifteen is such a weird year for Doctor Who because you've come off the back of the uh, you know the Hinchcliffe era and Barry Letts and Terence Dix, so the you've got two very distinct periods of Doctor Who where you kind of knew what you were going to get um, week to week. Uh, it was always going to be pretty strong. Um, well presented, well designed, well directed, and then suddenly you've got season fifteen. You've got Graham Williams, who's never produced before. Uh, he doesn't really know how to make a mark with the series. Um, he's been given an edict that he has to make sure it's not as violent, it's not as gothic. He's got to lighten the tone. There's things that are imposed on him, like inflation as well, on top of everything else. That means his budget Huge is not going to go where he wants it to. Um, so he's got all these insurmountable challenges. He knows that Robert Holmes is on his way out from the series, and he's got Anthony Reid coming in. It's it's very clear from the structure and the tone of the season and the type of tales that are being told that he's not quite fathomed out what he wants yeah. to do with Doctor Who at this stage. And the Sunmakers, you can sort of see the darkness of Bob Holmes is still bubbling away under the surface of the story but it's much lighter in touch than it would have been you know he only did Talons a few months before and that's more Robert Holmes given free reign to do exactly what he wants to do and the Sunmakers is a bit more of a here's here's what you've got to do don't be too violent don't be too dark don't be too bleak yeah and he does a sensible thing he goes the other direction and makes it more comedic yeah I mean god Graham Williams was on a hiding and nothing. It wasn't it this year. Uh-huh. I mean, he even has a story where they didn't have any sets, they ran out of money. Uh-huh. They, were, they had to lock them. One of those other stories, Invasion of Time, where the script 
they had to change it at the last minute and had to lock themselves away and produce another one. I mean, being surprised if after just this one year, he tapped out and said, look, this is just crazy. A lot oh. of people think would have went, this is too stressful. I'm just kind of, this is just mad. Um, and it says credit that he actually gets the whole season out, quite frankly. Oh, absolutely. Because I don't, I don't, I, I'm not sure any other producer had it quite so hard as he did. Oh, and certainly uh, on the first year, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there was all sorts of challenges throughout his three years. Um, I, least of all the fact that you've got Tom Baker threatening to quit every, you know, <laughs> every you know on regular intervals and then having, you know, oh, no, Tom, oh, no, Tom, when secretly I'm sure Graham Williams would have been delighted just to see the back of him. Uh, so it's a, I, I think that creatively it maybe wasn't, it, it was a challenge and maybe not uh as much fun as it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. If we just go right into it, so that we begin this story on Pluto in Megropolis 1, and we see the citizen Cordoba getting informed that his father's died and that he's to go to gather her head to pay his death taxes. So it's pretty drab looking Megropolis. I mean hmm. I mean he finds out when he sees Gather Head that he owes 117 Talmars that he's got no hope of paying. <laughs> but this opening shot it's like he looks very pained, and he's the top. The way they've shot it is the walls look extremely tall compared to me. He looks uh-huh. tiny. I think I think Cordo's adorable in this. I mean, I love his little uh-huh. hat he's got on. Looks like he's been at the he's working at McDonald's or something. It's got uh-huh. sort of that sort of outfit <laughs> on. Um, but the whole place just looks really lifeless. I mean, it just looks like this uh-huh. concrete block, really, isn't it? And that's the yeah. idea. And yeah, absolutely. I think some people look at it and go, "Well, oh, that's really cheap." and not a very effective set but i think the thing is it, it nods slightly to metropolis that you've got the suddenly the very heightened um ceilings so you're looking up at visual panels and things like that but it's all bland and concreted and dull because they're they're you know they're being oppressed they're they're they, yeah. they, you know they've got the usurians are not going to be they're not going to pay for them to have frivolities and artwork and all sorts of elaborate things they're not being encouraged to think they've got as we'll find out they're they're being pacified so that they're just purely going to meet the needs of these orients so that they can pay their pay their debt essentially and pay their way so why why would there be elaborate settings for them having this little door reminded me of the wizard of oz just the little door opening at the top and then her head just pops out and says Cordo, that's your, your oh, yeah. dad died. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, and he seems quite happy, so you can only assume that his father must be ill, because hmm. um, he seems quite relieved that he's died. And then that's when we cut to Gatherer Head. <laughs> what is his hat about? Oh, goodness only knows. But um, in, going back to the sets, look how much more elaborate his setting is. Oh so yeah, he's yeah. he's got this Mexican sort of. So originally, I think the designer wanted to have a more Mexican sort of vibe to it, but uh-huh. because of money, probably and other reasons, that was cut back completely. But one of the uh-huh. things that remained was this. It's like the, a Mexican sun uh-huh. behind him in his office. Yeah, and he's got and mahogany he's... desk that he holds maho- mahogany. Mahogany. <laughs> um, yeah, and so so it it shows you the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. He's got wealth, so he's got a lovely, luxurious 
um, real wood table, um, which oh, you mustn't scar the desk. You know, it's all the all these. Yeah, things. Scar, he says. Yeah, he's living in luxury. Um, as, I mean, it's topical even now. The fact that you've got the have and the have-nots, um, people that are struggling to make ends meet. Uh, Just go on Twitter, folks, and you'll read all about it. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. So it's it's not it's not as if it's Bob Holmes is touching on territory that's unique or even of that time it's an ongoing concern it never quite goes away <laughs> i love how the, the lighting in this set as well it's much more got the shadows in it and as oh. i see his hat he's got this elaborate outfit it was it was supposed to look like a humbug yeah and he talks about growing trees and i love how he brings out to talk about the account and it's in a plastic binder oh yes <laughs> he's got the, this plastic binder and of course he's saying to him that well actually you've not got enough money because the Golden Death, what is the Golden Death, I was wondering? Is it other other than being no. an episode of the Daleks Master Plan? <laughs> <laughs> or like in Revelation of the Daleks, where the that dignitary was painted gold. Is it the same thing that the, the person's painted gold oh. before they put in a mausoleum? I don't yeah. know, but the Golden Death intrigued me. I just thought, what is the Golden Death? Yes, uh, who knows? But uh, yeah, poor Cordo. He, he's he's doing he's just trying to do right by his poor dead dad. Yeah, and, and he's just given this horrible news that actually oh. you're still something like 30 Talmars in debt and you're just oh. going to have to do double shifts and work off. Don't sleep. You're going to have to pay it off. Oh. Yeah, and, please. It's not good upon. <laughs> and we get the first uttering off the line that's throughout the story. Praise the company. Bastard company that's just taxing everybody. <laughs> so it turns materialises on a rooftop overlooking a vast city and Leela spots Cordo going to commit suicide. So he's walking towards the edge, and he he's going to jump. He thinks that there's no way out. I can't pay this bill. And fortunately, though, Leela and the doctor get him to safety. It's the, yeah, the, 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 the fact that they he's obviously determined that he's going to do it. Tom and Leela, you know, well, the doctor and Leela literally throwing him back over, their, over the fence yeah. and the cordon and getting him safe. And um, what is a, quite a a fun story in a, in a comedic. So this is a really strong sort of moment, this, because, yeah, he's he's going to jump. He's He can't see a way out. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of actually quite dark stuff going on, but there's a lot of the... It's the facade of lightness. People just go, oh, this, this era is all just, like, fluffy and Definitely silly. Not. But, you know, suicide and all sorts being contemplated in this story. In the TARDIS just before that, we had... Um, Checkmaking six moves, Robert. So that he's playing chess with K9, and, and K9 says, Checkmating six moves, rubbish. He's, he just, but he then says something stupid about paint jamming the console up. Oh, because there's there's an ongoing, um, very thread about uh, the doctor actually be having been spending all his time painting the TARDIS between adventures. So you've gone from the season 14 control room and now he's suddenly back in this version of the control room. Um, so you, in the next story in Underworld, obviously see him in his bib and he's got his big yeah. paintbrush handy. So he's obviously, the Doctor's just been doing a lot of DIY this season. <laughs> yeah, it's just that he says that the console sort of stops because, oh, that will be the paint just uh, oh. getting in the, in the work. And I love K9 when he's saying, I'll be good, he wants to go out walkies, but he's not allowed. Uh-huh. Look. <laughs> walk, walk, mistress. <laughs> oh, you do a good canine impression. We might have to do this throughout the whole story. Um, <laughs> and it's a very future looking roof when they arrive. I mean, it's a great long shot. 
which like you can't see any buildings or anything. Oh. It's just this. It's really well done. But the doctor comments on the engineering, but I didn't think that the the model shot looked that great actually, or the painting. It looked a bit. Yeah, I can't, I can't work out what went wrong there. Like they, they, obviously there's a there's a nice um uh drawing of this model that they were gonna that they build. And then they take a really grainy picture of it and they yes. shoot they shoot it. There there's so I don't know whether they ran out of time or budget to do model shooting, and so they just decided that some stills would do the trick, but it it undercuts things a bit. I think it's such a shame yeah, because yeah. Yeah, you're trying to say, oh wow, what f- wonderful engineering! I take, have a look, Lila, check this out. Oh, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, I just didn't think it was that great. I thought, uh-huh. oh. and we get this fruity dialogue, this brilliant dialogue about the taxman to Cordo. So, um, the doctor saying that, would you care for a jelly baby? They're rather good with the big giant eyes. That moment with the when he's got the hat and he smile, and he says, "Don't you worry, you know, all you need is a wily accountant." <laughs> and just undercuts it. Um, what's been happening? And Leela talking about are these what are these taxes sacrifices to tribal gods? And, and he says, "Well, paying taxes more painful." Oh yes, uh-huh. so I say yeah. There's there's lots of nice little lines that I think if the kids don't get, the parents are going to appreciate. That's that's yeah, the, think, that's the thing. I think that's the thing because I think as a kid, this over, went completely over my head. But as an adult watching this. All this cheekiness, these dialogues, but now oh. I totally get it. And saying, of course, like everyone runs from the tax man. He's been very cheeky, Robert Holmes, because that is very true. We all would love not to pay our taxes, but it's just the way the world is, I'm afraid. Tom's coat. I always love this white coat. It's the best coat. I don't know what anyone says. It's the best coat. This <laughs> more grey one that he's got. I've been fortunate that some of the, most of the stories I've done with Tom so far have been this coat. Maybe the randomizer oh. must know that I like this coat, but He's wearing drawing it to it. He's drawing me to his, his coat. I just think it's his best looking coat. But uh, it's looking a bit threadbare by this stage, though. It's had it's, it's had a, it's had quite a life through time, all through time and space in the last couple of seasons with him. Yeah, I think this will be the first season he's wore it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it's this it might be the last time it's seen as well. He gets a newer one from the next again year. Well, Mark, at this point, it's the gatherer. Ah, the gatherer! <laughs> They're running away, but they don't know who he is. It's oh. just like, the doctor, it's the gatherer! And then she runs it's off. It's the gatherer! <laughs> and they go into this elevator. And then you see Cade with four raspberry leaves in a row, almost like oh. it's a game. And he's going, oh, he's putting them into place. And then he's eating them and talking about 50% compound interest. And He's a humbug. <laughs> yes, he's a humbug. <laughs> Yeah, so they, they see the him and Marn see the TARDIS on the top of the roof. And I love how he puts his hands to his mouth all the time as he's thinking. Mm-hmm. Thinking about what am I gonna do? And they're they think that the doctor and Leela are insurgents. Ah, uh-huh. yeah. Smugglers. They're trying to get you know, they're trying to get um, weaponry into the system and give it to the give it to the people underground. And you think, oh god, I'm being <laughs> And Cordo says that he's heard of outlaws in the undercity, but there's no light and he's afraid of the dark. There's, there's no night. There's no dark. That I think the city. I think the city, The megropolis is never sleep on Pluto. Yeah. Essentially, um. So they never see the dark. Um, but nobody's also allowed to go up on the roof. Uh huh. So I think it'll be all fully lit corridors, all day every day, stuck indoors, slaving away. Pretty, pretty much hell, really. 
Yeah, it's not that far removed from reality. But anyway. It's a great location, this. I mean, the doctor says Galileo would have been impressed with the six suns. Uh-huh. But it's a lovely location, this uh, tobacco factory. It's um, uh-huh. quite strange lighting behind them as they're going down the corridor. Yeah. I think it gives the story a lot more scale. I think it's a... I'm glad that Pennant Roberts managed to persuade Graham Williams to part with the cash to let them go and do a few more days location. Because otherwise, yeah. it, I think the story overall would look a lot cheaper because they would be trying to realise these tunnels with an already stretched budget. Whereas going on location, you've got nice these lovely elaborate tunnels and roof and it's all very industrial. Um, and it's it's something that the budget just wouldn't have accomplished on it if they were able to build it all from scratch. Yeah, I mean, we've had great sets on Doctor Who over the years, but just going on location, the reason that the new series always goes on location when they can is because it just sells it better than having a a set, you know, however much you might try and dress it up, sometimes a set just looks like a set and there's no way you can Mm -hmm. sort of disguise that. (laughs) I love how Tom, they meet the others and he just sort of goes, I guess you're the others. (laughs) And has a big smile. (laughs) Yeah, he's great in this. I think um, a lot of criticism is levelled at Tom Baker for him not taking the role seriously. But he never, having watched back some of the, like season 17 relatively recently, he, he's never underselling it. He's never sending it up. I think the only time in the seven years as the Doctor that I can think of where he crosses a line is in Nightmare of Eden when he does the, my legs, my arms, my everything. Oh, Yeah, that is a moment think, oh, that's, to be honest. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, he's taking the piss at that at that <laughs> particular moment. Um, but the rest of the time as the Doctor, regardless of the story, he's always invested and he's always taking it seriously. He doesn't... He, if he's sending things up in the story, it's usually the people in power. It's it's very purposeful and very aimed. The rest of the time he takes, he takes people seriously. He takes situations seriously. Um, he just uses his lightness of touch to either puncture pomposity or to just lighten the situation because oh doom and gloom you know you've literally just had corridor trying to jump off a roof that's how that's how desperate he is now the doctor's going to make jokes about the gatherer and the tax men because it's something that people can relate to you know and it, yeah. it'll probably bring poor corridor just down a peg from you know having been suicidal five minutes ago I, the criticism i've heard about tom is that he stops acting at some point and becomes just He's not acting, he's just being him. Um, but in this, I, I totally buy his character of the Doctor. I don't think he's... Uh-huh. Whether or not it's Tom Baker or whether it's a character of the Doctor, I don't think he knows by this point. Uh-huh. He's, Absolutely. They've, they've become one after the exactly. first couple of years, and that's what's happening. And it's only then it, it looks so different in season 18 is because he's been told, you have to act this way now. So he has to go back to an actor, as it were, as uh-huh. opposed to just being him. Oh yeah, um, and that's why that. season eighteen is so such a drastic difference. Oh yeah, he gives such a it's a different performance, but he's still you can still see that he's he, the character, the through line is the same. He's yes. just tonally very different. Um, because you sort of get in his first couple of years as well with Hinchcliffe, he's much more he whispers a lot. He's, you know, if yes, something he does, if, yeah. if he's if he's in a if you know if it's a real threatening situation, he doesn't raise his voice. He brings it down and he tells you quite clearly and plainly why you're in danger right now. 
and you you know he's he's always he's always very serious about it and he still does that throughout his seven seasons it's just he gets a bit bolder and a bit bigger with his performance along the way too so it's uh it's he's he's just having fun he's being inventive with the part because you wouldn't want to be absolutely the same all the time no. you can see that he's always playing with the part but always playing it in much the same with the with the same intent yes this uh, where the others are, I think it's wonderful. It's got this sort of ladders and holes. Uh-huh. I'm not quite sure what the inspiration for that was, but it was, I don't think it looks great. It's just, I, you know. I think it's really good, yeah, because the, the designer for this did The Sea Devils um, a few years before, and similarly with The Sea Devil base, he just has abstract shapes and forms that make the sets and they're very you know the, they're they're darkly lit backed and so it you can you can be a bit more abstract and clever with the design so you see some of the sets throughout this think some people think it was perhaps you know when they talk about the cheapness i think it was actually this designer's creative style you know with you've got a minimal budget as it is yeah you want to do things that evoke depth and give you an idea of what the set might contain beyond because even in some of the later sets you've got the the sort of the dentist's chairs in the background of the therapy room or the conditioning room or whatever it's called and he's got that bits in front so it just with very minimal budget and very minimal resource he is managing to do something quite clever with the space um i think it's it's a much smarter set design than people probably give it credit for it's just the money he can't, I agree. He I, can't I, I mean, sell his idea <laughs> as well as he perhaps wanted to yeah i agree i mean child me was totally wrong thinking this looked cheap when i watched it back i mean as i say that it's supposed to be bleak uh-huh. that's the intent that it's it, a metropolis on cluto it's not going to be you know covered in yellows and oranges and <laughs> uh-huh. it's going to be stark concrete looking uh-huh. but something like this where this is supposed to be the undersea and there's all these ladders which we have, are led to believe lead to different levels. And I think it looks really good. I think it's and it's well lit as well, a bit like um, the gatherer's office yeah. as well. He sort of there's one moment where I was watching it yesterday, um, where the gatherer just sits back in his chair and he almost blends into the background. It's so dark and dimly lit in the background that you can't gauge where he begins and ends. Um it's there's 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 more going on with the design and the lighting and the creative side of this story than could probably give credit for. I was surprised to notice some of these things that I probably never noticed before. I think you can go and revisit stories, and you you always come away with something that you maybe haven't clocked when you're when you're when you're really actively yeah. having to think about it instead of just sitting going I'll watch this for rechange. I'm sitting there going right, what do I need to notice about this story? And seeing things like that for the first time and going, oh, wow, that's really good. <laughs> so the Doctor and co meet the others in their base and then Mandrill whips the Doctor. Yeah, charming. Yeah, it's quite a vicious looking swing he has at him as well. Yeah. And Leela's in full Leela mode could cut his heart out. Like some of the lines she comes out with are absolutely brilliant. It's the bit later on where she goes, I'll see this place ankle deep in blood and he's just 
that's a very Robert Holmes line. That. <laughs> yeah, and she's oh, and Louise Jameson, as we said before, she just sells things absolutely, like, totally, absolute conviction. Even you know, she had that line at one point as well that I don't think many actresses could pull off very effectively. But the bit where Kaline Kaline's looking for a bit of praise, and she goes, "What do you want, Kaline? A biscuit?" Yes. And you think, there's so many other actresses that would have made that sound really terrible. Yeah, right. yeah. But she, somehow Louise Jameson sells that. <laughs> yeah, she is able to take any line, however cookie the line is, and yeah, huh. she just makes it real. Huh. But as you say, I, can you imagine, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, and I don't want to sort of name and shame anyone, that's the huh. problem. Well, Caroline Ford, sorry, we'll go with her, um, huh. saying, would you want a biscuit? She would have just completely made a meal of that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's the de- it's definitely I think one of the things that I always find interesting is we again go back to talking about having read interviews with actors and actresses that have been in Doctor Who is that some of them go oh well as far as being in Doctor Who went that was career suicide. Some of these actors and actresses, you know, most actors and actresses would get multiple lead roles in their career. That's For true. some of them, Doctor That's Who is maybe it. It's just statistically unusual for an actor to get multiple lead roles and to be cast over and over again. I mean, Louise Jameson went from doing Doctor Who to The Omega Factor to Tenko to Bergerac to EastEnders. She's now on Emmerdale. She's done all sorts in between. She's always doing guest spots. She's And she's great at everything she does. Yeah, she's, she's had just... a 50-year career and she's very rarely out of work. And some of the other actors that have appeared in Doctor Who over the years, I hate to say it, just aren't as good. <laughs> That's no, perhaps you're why absolutely their right. careers you, didn't you never, go and flourish. You never hear any of the, I've never heard any of the companions in the modern series complain and say, oh, I wish I'd never done Doctor Who. And mm. it's the same thing. They've went on to other things, like Billy Piper went on to do, of course, Diary of a Call Girl. You had Jenna oh. Coleman, who's went on to, you know, do the, what was it, The Serpent? The That BBC One, can't remember her. But she's been in all sorts of things since. Yeah. I think the fact that Louise Jameson managed to defy typecasting, you know, a lot of the other actors that had been in Doctor Who said, oh, well, it was typecasting back in those days. They couldn't see you as anything other than having been the companion in Doctor Who. And you go, well, how did Louise Jameson defy that expectation? Because she was a much better actress than most of them. That's yeah, the, that is the answer. Essentially down to that. I mean, some that of these the other answer. actors... Perhaps if it wasn't for typecasting, maybe some of them would have gone on and had different careers. But it's just, I mean, when you're an actor, it's going to be the luck of the draw. If 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 you're not somebody that people really want to work with or want to cast or that you don't wow in auditions. I mean, Matthew Waterhouse was never going to have, you know, a, a mantelpiece covered in BAFTAs and Oscars <laughs> and nominations, was he? Um, no, in the nicest possible way, no. Yeah, and didn't stop him saying to Richard Todd, though. Can you? Yeah, this is short. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I, 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 I think it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a funny line, isn't it? When you've got these actors and actresses complaining that Doctor Who might have been a a misstep in their career. Um. But yeah, for Louise exactly. Jameson, she completely exactly. defies how, that. How much exposure, mm-hmm. you know, could you get more than Doctor Who? Uh-huh. Uh, it's, yeah, it's uh-huh. cop out. Oh yeah, <laughs> and then we've got the little line that you liked with the "It's real, is it real skin?" 
it's skin. Like, it's real skin. And you, <laughs> she goes absolutely hell for hell for leather <laughs> with these with this dialogue. It's brilliant, Veet. Um, not sure I would want to mess with her. No, definitely not. And Tom is just brilliant, saying things like, "Well, you know, it's cozy here, isn't it?" And it's just mm. underplaying the whole fact that they're with this guy who's very dangerous and is likely to probably slit their throats. You know. Yeah, he's being very, he's being very flippant and just trying not to, you know, he, he's he doesn't want to show he's scared. That's that's the thing. The doctor doesn't always show that he's scared. Um, no, it's very that's... rare the doctor acts scared. Actually, uh-huh. yeah. and I think Tom Baker's doctor is definitely one that. Always has a bit of a front. So Cordo's told that, because he wants to stay with these outlaws, but he's told that to do that, he's got to earn his keep, so he's got to steal from the upper levels. And then the doctor's to help him, and he says, what if I refuse? Well, you die. Oh, it was just a passing thought. <laughs> <laughs> the collector and man are following K9's canine's progress, so K9 has came out the TARDIS and is looking for them. Did they get the tracker on him? was what I was thinking. Is it just a simple case that they're following one of the camera? I think they must be just following one of the cameras and then all right, it just there he is there. I think basically yeah, tracker I, on him, you know. I think they've I think that whatever means of CCTV or whatever they've got in place hasn't clocked the Doctor and Leela arrive, but it's clocked the TARDIS and then that's what's triggered the gatherer and Marn to go up and have a nosy and they've gone, right, okay, well there's obviously clearly something going on here. We'll put a tracker on it. And now yeah. they're, they're they're observing the whole situation. So the they, doctrine... do the, they do it with the doctor later, oh. sorry, where they say, like, I put the tracker on him. And I always used to think that it was, oh. they've actually put a tracker on him. Yeah, but I assume it's, not, it's just a camera. Physical. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess they maybe have, like, some sort of facial ID or motion capture or something like that. They're going, all oh, right, okay, him now, focus on him. Which, again, is like our world. You know, you can't go down any street now without CCTV. Oh, absolutely. Big brother. Yeah. And Gatherer Hade's reaction to K9 is just brilliant when he says, Oh, bye, my ledger. <laughs> and talks about the inner oh. retinue, the inner oh, retinue, yes. another um, reference oh. to obviously the business world. <laughs> so the doctor's out to with a fake compu card. So it's been made out for a thousand Talmars and he's to bring the money back. But it has to do it before the candle burns down or Leela, who's been held hostage, will be killed. And Cordell shows him the way. And then we get to the first cliffhanger where uh, I love Tom Baker's business where he's not finding the card. He goes into his coat. He, he's great at all that business where he's like, oh, where's the card going? Oh, it's in my pocket. <laughs> and uh, he's in the booth. He actually says, intense, please. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it's so funny. Yeah, just, you know, he's wanting, you know, he knows his denomination. He's acting all casual. Da, 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 and dealing with the machine. Um, it's so odd to see the doctor, particularly Tom Baker's doctor, doing something as every day and conventional is basically going to an ATM and drawing cash. <laughs> he asks, you know, is it, you just put in a reader and actually... Oh yeah, he's, he's behaving, you know, he's behaving like such a fool. Do you, do you feed it into the machine? Yeah, just the, yeah, he's, he's, I like how he's just sort of gently pretending to be the fool. Yes. Very Patrick Troughton. <laughs> oh yes. I, do you feed it into a reader? He's just <laughs> having great fun. And the doctor gets gassed. So he, he does a big thumbs up to Cordo, like, yeah, yeah, we're in, I've got the tens coming. And then he gets gas and he's looked to the camera. I never noticed it before at the cliffhanger. He just sort of gives a look as if to say, oh, well, I've been gassed. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a desperate look because I've always made, it's always looked to me as though he's making a gesture to Cordo to sort of go, like he's, he's mouthing something. And I'm like, is he saying Cordo go? And I've never been able to quite 
Ah, okay. I took it as Sonia was giving a look of, oh, oh well. Yeah. <laughs> <That he was laughs> no. with it. I hadn't thought it like that, that he's saying oh. he's a look to see it Cordell get out. Yeah, oh, I, I've always interpreted it that way, but I don't know whether that was the intent or not. It doesn't really, it's not clear. Yeah. It, 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 oh, that's what I, that's that's my, one, one's reading of it. <laughs> Your interpretation. Yes, my interpretation. Your interpretation may vary, dear listener. <laughs> As we go into the, the resolution of the cliffhanger, so Cordo hides, so the guards come along and take him away. And these pickup guys have got blue quality tops, which is quite a fashion statement. Oh, yes. I was thinking, could Cordo not have just pressed the button? So these guards come along, they open the booth, and then they, what they, he does is he just click, presses like a button on the outside, like you would get like on a bus, you know, like emergency stop button. Uh-huh. They just hit a button and the thing opens. So I was just thinking, Cordo could have just pressed the button and hit the letter. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's maybe it's maybe not too obvious what was going on there, unless who knows, maybe they've got like maybe it's thumbprint or fingerprint recognition or something like that, maybe. We'll go, we'll, we'll put that on it. We'll say that that was it. <laughs> and we get the first appearance now of the collector. So he goes and visits a collector saying that he thinks there's a rebellion going on and the doctor's involved. And you may see this, he's like a mole just on looking at the figures on, uh-huh. on the top of his desk. And the chair is just so big for him. I mean he looks tiny in this giant chair it's and great she, because he's so agitated and, yes. and hunched up you know he's obviously so intent on what he's doing because he doesn't look up from what he's reading and he yeah like a bit like a mole he's so he's almost myopic reading the paperwork yeah. it's uh, such a it's a, a very energetic performance and he's got the dennis healy style uh-huh. uh, eyebrows oh uh-huh. yes time is money and i just adore wolf's voice this, uh-huh. He just speaks like a child. It's just like, you oh, know, like, very na- nasal. Yeah, he's very Happier. nasal. <laughs> and he strains like almost like a mini Wall Street guy. Uh-huh. Of, and he's got the, the thing going with the button and he's pressing it. And he's, he's all animated. I, I love him in this. I just think he's great in this. It really carries it along. I think if they had cast it differently, if they hadn't got somebody who was quite so clearly throwing themselves into it, it could have been a really... It could have really been dire. It could have been really poor. But Henry Wolfe is fantastic. He completely sells this absolutely demented little accountant. That's basically what he is. He's just so fixed on what he does. He's here for profit and for gain. And, oh, he's thrilled by the <laughs> thought of it all. The doctor wakes up in the correction centre and meets uh, Bishop. This is a fellow prisoner that's been put in there. And we find out all about that PCM has been pumped into the air. So everyone's acting the way they are because there's an anxiety-inducing drug that's been pumped through the air. I could, yeah, I, I, yeah, I wonder sometimes if they do that to us. <laughs> or is it just me because I'm permanently anxious? Who knows? <laughs> but I think it's quite an interesting thing because this story predates the arrival of Blake Seven. And there's quite a few things in it that are reflected in Blake Seven. So I don't know. I mean, a lot of them are, you know, they're they're basically typical story tropes. So you would have, you know, things in dystopian futures where they would drug the populace and um, you've got very industrial settings and things like that. But it's quite telling that not only, you know, there's the, the connection of having Michael Keating there, who's then soon cast by Pennant Roberts as Villa in Blake Seven, but a lot of the little tropes and details in this story are things that are reflected in the wider Blake Seven universe. So there's tales of the people, the populace being drugged and subject, you know, and, and um, subdued by 
uh, force and by you know it's it's quite it's 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 obviously sort of perhaps in the zeitgeist or maybe just Terry Nation happened to tune into the Sunmakers while he was storylining mm-hmm. uh, like seven. Who knows? But, Robert um, Holmes wrote a couple episodes, so as you say as well, didn't he? He did, yeah. Robert Holmes in the first year um, of Blake Seven, Terry Nation does it all himself, and by the end is running out of ideas and is handing in about thirteen pages of script and hoping for the He's best. <laughs> yes. Um, come the second year, they've said to him, "Right, okay, you do key episodes, and we'll bring in some other writers." Um, and Chris Boucher Chris doing Boucher. script editing duties does a lot of the scripting himself. Uh, but he also brings in Robert Holmes, and Robert Holmes delivers some of the better scripts of the of the second year of Blake Seven, certainly. Um, and it's yeah, there's I think there's a lot of cross pollination between the series. I think they were very eager that they wouldn't be the same, but they have a lot of the same personnel and directors and designers. Uh, so it's quite it's quite interesting. So when when you do get around to watching Blake Seven, try and spot <laughs> the things I'm, that I'm, are similar. I'm just going to see it now. Yeah, I'm going to go and watch it. So that I'm going to just uh-huh. cave in now. I'm going to I'm going to watch Blake Seven, and that means that I can also get uh, uh-huh. maximum power. Listen to his. Yeah. So there's no guards around when the doctor wakes up, and he's able to hop around and sabotage the equipment. So there's nobody comes in and is like, you know, what are you doing? He's able uh-huh. to hop around. He come he. First of all, he wakes up with a cow noise, which is it's strange. <laughs> <laughs> he really I don't, I don't know what yeah. that's about. And then he sabotages the equipment, so when oh. a guard does come in, he gets knocked out by electrocuting him. Yeah. So I can only but, assume that PCM maybe doesn't work so effectively on Time Lords, and they just work on the basis that if you put them in the correction center, nobody's actually going to get out of bed and sabotage anything because they're too they're too flooded with anxious. Gas. Yeah, well, because Bisham's awake as well, isn't he? But he doesn't even, uh-huh. he just sort of sits there and uh, I'm just going to sit here and be corrected. Yeah, he's pretty lackadaisical. He's just lying there and he's like, oh, well, you know, I'll just take it as it comes. <laughs> and Marn informs he that the doctor's in correction now, so he wants to see the doctor. So he says he's going to give him the thousand Talmar. So he thinks he's being clever. He's like, right, okay, he's in charge of this rebellion. And he's been locked up for giving the for trying to get ten thousand. Oh, sorry, a thousand Talmars. I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to double bluff this here. But then the doctor leaves the jelly babies with Bisham. Uh-huh. As a wee. I, like, I love but that I'll little just, gesture. <laughs> what what's happening? Well, I'm going to get corrected. Okay, well I'll just leave you a little jelly baby. You can't get you can't eat them because you're what you're uh-huh. completely in a straitjacket. But you just watch them. Oh, exactly. I think that's quite nice of him, leaving his jelly babies. It would perk anybody up. Unfortunately, time is up. So Mandrill says time is up. The candles went to the the level. But Cordo arrives in the nick of time to say, the Doctor's been captured. But <laughs> Leela's really commanding in the fight, so they're trying to... First of all, everyone gets very, like, chicken shit. And it's like, I'm not fighting this, <laughs> this woman that ah. looks like she can take care of herself. Oh, and yeah. So, and so Mandrill has this little fight with, with Leela, but she would take him for her for breakfast. Oh, absolutely. She'd get the best to just about anybody. Um it's yeah, she's pretty full on. It's quite a for for a relatively confined space, it's quite a well choreographed fight for a for a Doctor Who's multi camera studio setup. Yeah, she's Louise Jameson, Jameson is a, a force to be reckoned with. Um on top of everything else, she's Pretty bloody fierce. Corto is so brave, though. I mean, he, 
she wants to go and rescue the doctor and says, will anyone come with me? And the others are all just, no, oh, I'm not getting involved. But he's like, I'll come. I this, guy who is the, this guy in the last episode who was ready to obviously end his life, now he's got, because of the doctor and Leela, he gets this bravery in it. And his journey in the story is just really good. It's but, really sweet. I like that yeah. he steps up. And he, he's, you can see, he, he's still very nervous uh, about it, but he goes out, you know, he steps up and he goes, I'll come with you anyway. You know, he's defying that instinct that's telling him, oh, bloody hell, this would be a terrible idea. He's going to do it anyway, because it's for the greater good. He's sort of, he's he's willing to give it that extra something because they've, they've, they've saved him from suicide. Yeah. He's, he's going to see them all right. It's quite a sweet little character moment. And they meet K9. So K9's been following them and is at the top of the... He obviously oh. couldn't get down the grate because he couldn't fly yet. Um, <laughs> the, <ladder. laughs> the less said about that, the better. <laughs> but his blushing is brilliant. He does these little noises where, like he's blushing, like, mm, or something. Oh. John Leeson just adds so much character to K9 in every story. He's in. I mean, season 17 just gets a bit dreary with K9. Mm. With K9, I mean, not season 17 as oh. a whole, because just the performance is just so dull compared to John Leeson. Oh yeah, David Brierley doesn't. He, I I like the fact that David Brierley plays K nine as a very fastidious little sort of computer. Yes, but yeah. John Leeson gives him much more of a uh, perkiness and uh, cheekiness. There's something that there's there's a character characterfulness and there's more part personality. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, it always makes me chuckle. I think. Uh, I would I would just have K9 as a full-time companion for every doctor forever and ever and ever. And that'd be I, some people may disagree with me, but they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing K9 with see with, with Colin oh, Baker's doctor. Colin Baker. <laughs> oh can you imagine the two of them? It would be great if you know if the if Colin Baker's doctor made some sort of grammatical slip up. And K9 would just interject <laughs> and go, Oh yeah. I, I think you'll find. <laughs> Oh, that would have been so much fun. Yeah. Somebody write a, do a big finish about that or something, please. Oh, yes. Oh, K9's adventures with every single doctor, <laughs> please. <laughs> it's really interesting at this point where Leela has fear because she's getting affected by the anxiety agent. And she has this moment where she's in fear. She's like, I don't know why I'm being afraid. And I think she plays that really well. And it's interesting to see Leela completely not knowing what to do. Ah, oh, yeah, just that slight, slightly disconcerted and thrown by the feeling of fear because it's not something that is not comes naturally to Leela. She's been raised as this warrior of the Seva team who is prepared to face any danger and goes into battle at the drop of a hat. Um, suddenly thinking, oh, oh, I'm not too sure about this. Um, and the fact that Cordo and has Bishop joined them by this point? I'm not quite sure. But oh um, yes he has, yes, yes. Uh, so they released what they've done is they've went uh, sorry to they've they went to the see where the doctor was, but he's gone, but they released Bishop. Yeah, you're right. Oh uh, yeah. So she's 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 with them and she admits that she's afraid. And it's Cordo and Bishop that persuade her to keep going. It's yeah. it's quite an inversion because normally she's the one that's willing everybody to go and fight. Um, and it's the one the one occasion where somebody has to tell her, no, we're going to carry on, Leela. We're going to see this through. She shoots a guard dead at this point with this very large looking gun. Oh, yeah. But the guard's helmet was so big. I mean, his helmet, it was like, 
I don't know who ordered the hats in for this got it completely wrong because that guard <laughs> was completely drenched in this hat. I mean, it was just so... I was, he was drowning in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. And I loved how there's a curved corridor. So it's like the arc of space all over again where it's like this, it, you go around this curved corridor. That's like... <laughs> it's the a great doctor... reset. Oh. Yeah. Oh. The Doctor being tracked um, now goes back to... So he sees a uh, gatherer head first, of course. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful scene where <laughs> he's just, just taking the piss out of Gatherer Heed and just playing him at his own game. Oh, it's great, yeah, because Gatherer Heed thinks he's smarter than he actually is, so he spends the entire story going, I've had a good idea, this is what I'm going to do next, I'm so smart, I'm so clever. Um, and then the Doctor uses Latin on him, and the Gatherer's not smart enough to actually know any Latin, so when the Doctor goes, Rubusidus, and is talking about the rat, <laughs> and he goes, Raspberry leaves, and he's sort of correct. He is almost correcting him because he doesn't realise what the hell the doctor's talking about. Um, yeah. He, yeah, the whole time, and he's so, and the doctor even says humbug. Um, <laughs> there's all these little digs that he makes at him. It's great. There's it's the sparring between the well, unbeknownst to the gatherer, there's he's, he's actually being sparred with and toyed with much more than he's he's ever given. He's he's going to give credit for. He's been tracked now, so he leaves and we get the, oh, I've put the tracker on him by Marn, which as we've just found out and discussed is they just found him with a camera. Yeah. Um, and he goes back to the base and delivers the Talmars and discovers that Leela's gone. And he gets whipped in the face again. I've put here. Hmm. He gets accused of being a spy for the gatherer and gets whipped in the face because of course he's, they're like, why on earth did, did they allow you to come back with the Talmars? Ah, yeah, they're so they're so ready they're so ready to assume that the gatherer's up to no good. And the doctor knows that. That's why he's just called him a humbug. It's you know, he's he's he knows that he's a fraud and he's seen right through that and he's basically said to his face, I know you're talking rubbish. You're you know, you're just yeah. taking a pick, but I'll take your thousand Talmars and I'll do whatever it is you want me to do because I'm still gonna win. <laughs> we get the three sister story again, which it's really interesting because it came up in the Android invasion, which I did about a month ago, whatever. So it was in my head. Oh my mm. God, he's doing that same story again. And apparently it is. It's the same story he's talking about when he says, uh -huh. There were three sisters. It seems to be that Tom obviously loved the story and wants to just uh -huh. keep putting it in. Yeah. And when they say, Oh, just improvise something, that'll be his little back of his mind. There were once three sisters. Oh, God. The three sisters with a treacle well. Ah, uh -huh. and they lived at the bottom of a treacle well. Ah. Uh -huh. <laughs> So we come up to the second cliffhanger. So Cordo tells Leela that they must be daring and take the P45 route. Yes. They go down the P45, but unfortunately there's a roadblock and the guards are coming towards them. And then they turn around and there's guards coming the other way. I love how there's a motor with padding at the front. So it makes yeah. it look like it looks like they've got their like sofa on the front of the <laughs> of this little Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's an odd design choice, but um I suppose if you want to, maybe maybe they want to, if they want to clear a path, they don't want to hurt people. Perhaps, you know, it's, they padded the front of it so that they can just <laughs> gently nudge people out of the way when they come through at one mile per hour. <laughs> and thought it like that, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're maybe not all entirely mean and nasty on Pluto. <laughs> no, they just wear hats that are too big for them and, yeah. Yes, absolutely, see. because of all the hot air swilling about in their, <laughs> in their massive hats. <laughs> And the cliffhanger is a lovely close-up shot of Louise Jameson. 
But um, yeah, it's nice. But she gets a lovely close up. That's such a good, you know. I I think Pennant Roberts. Obviously, I mean, he worked with Louise Jameson again after doing Doctor Who. He 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 was the one that initially cast her. I think they obviously had a very good bond. And he enjoyed working with her because he gives her great shots. That's such a good dramatic shot. He's got a right front and center on that face. I'm I just got such a striking appearance and those beautiful yeah. piercing blue eyes. Yeah, it's quite a it's a it's uh it's a pretty well staged cliffhanger. I think the fact that it's on film means it's just edited that little bit more snappier and I agree. cleaner cleaner cut than perhaps it would have been in the studio. So again, way hey for the for the um, persuading them to go out on location for an extra couple of days. Yeah, it just it just adds so much to it, it really does. Uh-huh. Yeah. Part three begins with K9 blasting the guards. So we've got these two guards that are absolutely hopeless. So one of them comes out and tries, right, you're under arrest and gets shot by K9. And then the other guards, for some reason, just comes out and gets shot as well. I mean, why on earth he couldn't have shot them from the truck? I don't know. I mean, he could have just stayed in the truck and just, and he's got a gun at the truck and could have just went, right, you're under arrest, you know, get in the, the truck. But no, he comes out the truck and gets shot. Oh, yeah, it's a bit. It's it's an awkward one. It's I don't think it's staged as well as it could have been, um, but it's it's not too obvious. Maybe maybe from his vantage point, he can't see K nine because I don't think he's quite come out of his hiding place at that point. So it's a it's it's weirdly okay. done, but it still looks like the guards almost stepped off and is a bit like, what the hell? Yeah, just happened I, there? I think he could have seen him. I think he could have seen him. I, I think he's just. Uh-huh. He's laughed, really. Yeah, he's just had he's had a momentary lapse of judgment, <laughs> <laughs> and it's brilliant how Leela insists that she wants to drive, puts, and she puts it in reverse and can't drive, and then uh-huh. kind of goes, "Well, I just want the gun anyway. I'll I'll take the gun." Oh yeah, oh, fine, I'll take the gun. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, well, that yes, uh-huh. but she's she's want just she just wants to get throw herself into the situation. She's having fun. I want oh, to drive this it, thing. Ah, uh-huh. she's yeah, she's a, she's about to incite rebellion. It's what she's good at. But then she's too busy celebrating and gets shot and knocked off the the truck. Yeah, she's an adrenaline junkie. She obviously maybe that cuts through the PCM because she was having a great old time and fighting back and then gone for Leela. Yeah, so they have to leave her behind. Uh Yeah. I know the fact that they have to go, no, it's too late. We just we're going to have to leave her. Um, You can see that Bisham and Cordo are are sort of gaining confidence a bit more each time. Yeah, they are, yeah. Uh Mandrill threatens to burn the Doctor now, because if he doesn't confess to being a fire, he's going to burn him now. He gets the, Michael Keaton's character gets the irons out. Oh. Um, I just it struck me that Michael Keaton is just very much in the background. I mean, a lot of people say, right, oh, it's got Michael Keaton in it, and he was in Blade mm. Seven, but actually, he doesn't do much in this story at all. He's he's sort of just there. <laughs> no, yeah, there's not a lot. I think if they were a bit more clever about it, they probably could have reduced the number of speaking parts. You could have merged yeah. some more of these characters together because you've got Keating and you've got Marn and uh, I'm mixing all the names up now, but you've got Veet rather and Michael Keating's character that I forget the name of. Um, you could probably just merge them into one effectively. But then that would probably have changed all of British sci-fi TV history because Michael Keating maybe wouldn't have been cast in that instance and wouldn't have appeared in Blake 7 and wouldn't cross Pennant Roberts' path. So I'm just That's wishful okay. thinking now. And Sylvester McCoy would say, or the Seventh Doctor, 
That oh. was one of those pebbles that went into the pool and Absolutely. If he hadn't if he had been cast by Penance Roberts in that little bit part, he wouldn't have been considered for Villa. So it is what it is. He does have a quite sarcastic sense of humour, but no, it just struck me that he doesn't really do anything. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Bishop McCord to arrive and tell Banjo to stop this going to Burnham. And the doctor then has the idea of, right, well, if the air was clean, oh. you could rebel against the company. Yeah. And he has the moment where he has these weird specs on. He's, he's like making this device and he's got the, oh. this... It just looks weird with his... I don't know what it's so odd. I think about. it's like a sort of... It, it's got one sort of magnifying lens and the other one's blacked out just so that you can focus with the one eye. But it, you yeah. can see he's doing a bit of a, lot, a lot of sort of actorly stuff with these glasses on and looking and peering at them with the one eye. <laughs> yeah. I'm a gift for an apt phrase, he says. Oh, yes. A gift for an apt phrase. He does indeed. So the doctor's plan is lower the temperature in the vapour chamber, which will then reduce the PCM in the air. And Mandrel pipes up after not wanting to do anything. Well, that could work, actually. Yeah, you've got a point there, Doc. And it's all controlled from the same place. So uh-huh. Pluto hasn't got the savvy to have it, all things in different places, to have everything uh-huh. in the one place, which is great for us. And this brilliant moment where he says, yes, yeah, scar throughout the city, tell us what he... It's a very Tom moment. Uh-huh. I think it's... Fighting rebellion. Well, interesting that Mandrel suddenly... It's a bit of an about-face, because, as you say, uh, he's not really wanted to engage with all these people. He's, you know, he's one of the outlaws, and he's living in the Undercity and all that. And suddenly, he's much more helpful and... <laughs> He's not, for the rest of the story, from this point onwards, he is not the full of threats and torture and all that. He's suddenly very eager and proactive and going to get engaged. No, yeah, I've done this historically. I know what we have to do. And he knows how to read the dials and all these things. So he suddenly, it's a bit of an about face. He's not quite the same character in the second no, half as he has been in the first. He's not a threat from that point onwards. No, um, so I, think I don't even think he's got his whip in his hand at this point. I think he gets, exactly. He's put that aside. He's uh-huh. once he once he's left the underground, he puts his bondage to bed. <laughs> Leela says, "Get this thing off me!" So she's in a skimpy street jacket and a bandage, and she's questioned by the collector and reveals the doctor's a time lord. And the collector then sort of listens to this and goes, "Nah, right. Well, you can get rid of her now. I'm not interested. Wants a reward for the doctor's capture, and Leela's going to have a public execution. She's going to be steamed." Nice, yeah. That's again. That's another. That's quite another dark, unpleasant situation for a for a seemingly lighter version of Doctor Who. They're threatening to steam someone alive. Yeah, it's, it's pretty horrendous. Fingers are beckoning. I've put here. So he's he, mm. he's again. He's just doing his stuff. The clip, and he just pipes up and goes, "Get it, me," <laughs> and asks. It. And ask the the, the the computer, of course, what's in grade three in the last public survey, potential for market development, low. Yeah, I don't think, I can't see the Time Lords um, having these sirens coming in and selling them insurance. Don't think that would work. No. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think if, you, if you're if you a Time Lord, you'd probably see into the future and figure out whether it's worth your time or not. And gather heads, lines just get better and better. Voluptuousness, you globosity. <laughs> I know. I think. I, yeah, I think Robert Holmes obviously got the thesaurus out and just went through the most <laughs> sycophantic phrases he could find. Um, it's it's hilarious. The gatherer just coming out with all these things for the sake of the collector and his groveling and his fawning and his bowing and scraping, sucking up. 
gets more it gets worse as the, as the story goes on his lines get even more and more sort of preposterous oh yes absolutely he's he's he spends so much time brown nosing that he doesn't really know what else to do with himself <laughs> i love the moment where he just goes ah because uh, the the collector said well we'll pay for the execution out of your private purse Oh yes, ah uh, yeah. If you if you find the doctor, you'll pay the reward out your private purse. And he's horrified at the notion. So suddenly he has to, he stops Marn. Uh, yeah. In fact, he stops Marn. Don't don't alert people to look for the doctor. <laughs> don't tell them there's going to be a there's going to be a reward for finding him. <laughs> I'll <laughs> find him. And then when he tries to protest, the collector just goes, "You spoke." Uh, uh, no. <laughs> yes, I uh, so he knows his place enough not to object. So there's going to be a two-hour public holiday without pay. How generous. This, how generous of them. He says to man, fool, I've got here, but I can't remember what that was about. Yeah, that bit when he suddenly, he, I think I think this is the point where the gatherer, basically he and Marn have been having this exchange. And again, because he thinks he's so smart, um, and he realises he's being played for a bit of a fool, but he's playing it back on Marn and pushing it back on her, and he's kind of like, fool, as if it's oh, all, yeah. you know, sort of, oh, push back a bit here. It's, like, it's not me that's been the idiot here. Leila's then seen on an angle on the wall, which mm-hmm. is a really strange effect, and she's afraid, because of this PCM, she's afraid of the steamer. Oh. So you get this guard that comes in and is quite vicious to her, and is like, you know, oh, you don't know what's going to happen to you. Uh-huh. But she's on this angle. It looks really painful. And I think Louise Jameson said it was, wasn't was not comfortable at the film either. Uh-huh. Like on this, it's almost like she's on a giant stick. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's just basically hung on a little wire and that's it. It looks so uncomfortable. And then you've got the uncomfortable fact that this man just comes in and gloats. Yeah. Goes off laughing to himself about what a horrible execution she's got to look forward to. You think, oh god, it's quite, it's very bleak, and this character doesn't really say or do much else. I don't think he pops up much throughout the rest of the story. He just comes in and has a laugh at her expense. Yeah, it's harsh. Caden Man then have this wonderful scene with um, trying to find the doctor on his own. So he's trying to get. I'm going to find him myself oh. and get the credit, and then they're fooled by the doctor's done something with the cameras, oh. so it makes it appear that he's there. But of course, they're looking at him like. Apparently he's supposed to be here, but what's happening? And they're completely bamboozled. What uh-huh. what's going on? It's um, so funny. Yeah, the guy again. Yeah. It's the gatherer. He just thinks he's. It's a brilliant. Ah, he comes around the corner with his gun and he's brandishing the gun and he's got the stance. He's like, "Yes, I've got him." Oh, <laughs> and he's where is he? <laughs> he's not even here. It's so it's it's very funny. I think he's having a great time. It's such a good performance, having a laugh. Oh, I love him. I love him. I, I, I didn't appreciate his performance as much before I watched it the other day, and I thought, this oh. guy is, is brilliant. I, I've never appreciated it as much before his performance. Oh, definitely. I feel, I feel like I'm going to end up having to watch this again, because I've just enjoyed it so much, actually. It's <laughs> one of those stories that, I, when we agreed to talk about it, I suddenly thought, do I have enough to talk about? <laughs> and I'm, I'm realising that there's probably more to talk about. Then oh, I, I think would, would have given it credit yeah. for. Uh-huh. The Doctor Canine, Bisham, Mandrill, Cordo, they now enter the main control centre and the two workers agree to join in with the revolution. And that's quite clever that they come in and they're like, what's going on, citizens? Uh, we're taking over. Are you with us? Okay. Yeah, okay, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they just join with hardly uh-huh. any persuasion, you know, because why not? They'll get killed otherwise, probably. Exactly. Or I think up or something. 
you'll just go along with this one. <laughs> and Leela on the telly is announced to be executed in the convention chamber. And they put a picture of the doctor up, which has got lots of scarf. He's yeah. got suddenly this shot, which if we were being really itty-bitty, where on earth did they get the shot from with a hat and scarf on like that? Exactly, because but... he doesn't wear his hat for the rest of the story. So <laughs> how he managed to get a mugshot of the doctor like that, I'm not too sure. But that's just that's just a continuity quibble. <laughs> and the doctor's absolutely insulted that, that with the price that's on his head, and he says, peanuts, that's an insult! Only charging whatever the amount is, however many Talmars. <laughs> the drugs yes, off, it's... and I've wrote this down, the drugs off, I'm going to butcher this, but the drugs of Gabrielides offered a whole star system for my head once. Exactly. Yeah, so a few Talmars in comparison. That's, that's peanuts. And Cordo is totally in his element. He is loving it, saying, revolution! You know, and he is, yeah, love this guy. Oh, yeah. It's so funny. It's I, I think it's quite, a, it's a really sweet performance. Um, and I think it's one that deserves a wee bit more credit than it you would get. I don't, I think, um, he maybe he's not he's maybe not the strongest actor in the world, but you can see the progression of the character. He's having fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Once he's that got that freedom, yeah. uh-huh. He's sort of one, yeah, once his anxiety's lifted a little bit and he's tasted a bit of freedom, he's he relishes it. And I think that's nicely and neatly played. And K9 says, please do not embarrass me, because he's the one that he's the one that has to go into the, the great and to go to the steamer and get in. And he says, do not embarrass me, because, of course, he's saying, K-9, it's up to you. Yes. It's, yeah, it's nice to see K-9. This is his first proper story as an active companion. So, he's, he's they're, you know, they're trying to find logical ways to get him involved in the plot somehow. And, you know, you get him going into this poor, into this grate or whatever it is, because he can't, he's the only one that can withstand the um, the, the pressures in the tunnel or wherever yeah, he's going. Yeah. It's a... Uh, yeah, it's quite, I think it, you can see that there, Robert Holmes is going, how do I shoehorn this dog into this story? What do <laughs> but, I get him to do? Yeah, but he does, he, he's, he's a member of the crew, he's not uh, just uh-huh. a machine that's just, well, a, a bit a bit of fluff that's on the floor that's used by the Doctor, it's a proper, uh-huh. proper character. Oh yes, oh, yes. It's, it's interesting to see how that develops as time goes on, because John Leeson's maybe not giving K-9 quite as many character traits yet as will come yeah. to pass. I think the next year when you've got the Doctor and K-9 having arguments when he's saying, you know, you always want, to, is it in the Stones of Blood where the Doctor says, you know, you you always wanted to be a bloodhound, didn't um, K-9 <laughs> goes, negative, <Yes>. negative. <laughs> and there's just the silly little quibbles that they have. And, ob- and obviously his big moment in the pirate planet where he has a whole plot thread with the polyfreeze Abatron. Oh, absolutely. all of that. So, yeah. yeah. All good fun. I love the collector's uh, head chair grinds to a halt, so everyone's gathering for this execution. It looks a very small, sparse crowd, obviously. Um, oh. And they all seem to be just like sitting doing as if they're at a cafe, really. Yeah. Rather than, that, you know, that, right, it's going to be a big public scene in here. Um, but I love how the collector's chair is moving and he just grinds to a halt and says, Are we ready? He's just there. He wants his best. He's got the best seat in the best position and he just wants things to get underway. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I quite like. The fact that there's not much of a crowd there because I think they comment on how they're selling tickets for the event. Yes. But they've given everybody a two-hour unpaid holiday. So most people are given that the majority of the population of the Megropolis are working double shifts and probably how well, whatever many hours a day it is on Pluto. Um they're worked 
absolutely flat out. They've been given a two-hour unpaid holiday. They might be getting paid, but they're going to be glad to just sit down and do nothing for two hours. I think he also says it's free on the TV. I think he admits. So the, the gatherer says, sorry, the collector says, it's not the same thing at all. No sense of a shared experience. Yes. <laughs> and he's absolutely <laughs> relishing the whole situation. Oh, God. This is brilliant. But so yeah. Leela's put into the steamer and the doctor's trying to rescue her because canine's got in, stops the pumps for a few minutes. It says a few minutes, but it seems to go on for about 10 minutes, this. I mean, yeah. he says at the start, right, we've only got two minutes. And, of course, the big line for me is, this is a moment to get a real feeling of job satisfaction. <laughs> And I like the I like the fact that what's the comment that the gatherer makes is, oh, you'll be able to hear it perfectly in duodecaphonic sound. Yes. It's just <laughs> Robert Holmes giving all these little details and throwaway lines that oh. others that maybe wouldn't invest in a script. Are the wire microphones wired in? Then Michelle here within a few seconds, and he's relishing just like oh, hearing yeah. the screams. He's a right sadistic bastard. This he guy. really is. Yeah, he probably would have gotten on all right with with um, Mandrel down in the underground, you know, branding <laughs> people and whipping them and all sorts. And the cliffhanger is they can't hold on any longer. So the doctor's been in there about five minutes already, but they that still means... can't untwine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, poor Leela, it's another cliffhanger for Louise Jameson. And you can see it probably doesn't cut as soon as it should. She's sort of lying there and desperately trying to must look desperate, must look <laughs> yes. desperate. I'm stuck and I'm tied down and oh, I'm going to be steamed any minute now and when are they going to say cut? <laughs> and at the start of part four, even Mandrel says, hurry up, Doctor, you've only got two minutes. He's already been there about ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it feels a little bit elongated, that sequence. <laughs> and the PCM's clearing from the air, so the Doctor manages to get her out. And Bisham saying that the PCM's clearing from the air faster than he even thought it would. And canines left there while the Doctor and Leela head off to the Collector's Palace. It's very, yeah, I think that's yeah. a point where maybe the, the, they're trying to make use of canine. Robert yeah, Holmes has just gone, actually, I'm not sure how to involve him. So, the, so one of the characters just goes, I feel a lot safer if you left canine on guard. And then they go, okay, no bother. And just leave. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit just before that, I think, where... He says, where's K9? K9? And everyone goes, oh, K9? K9? Oh, K9? And everyone's oh, looking yeah. for him and then he appears. That wasn't in the script originally. So that, that's yeah. definitely Tom that's put that in. It's an incredibly awkward scene, isn't it? And it feels really strange because this all, like, having looked at the times, all the episodes are about a second short of 25 minutes. There's no reason they could have just, that they could have gone without that 20 or 30 seconds of the really awkward K9, K9, K9 business. Because it just, it's so clunky. <laughs> it serves no purpose. Yeah, it, it just sort of it stretches out the episode by two minutes. Yeah. I'm not going to do the impression of the collector through all these lines because I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll end up doing it all day. You but, can't help yourself. <laughs> but he says, he says, the subtleties will be lost, the deeper notes of despair, the fi final dying cadences. The whole point of a good seeming is the range it affords because, of course, they hear Leela uh -huh. And then they're like, where's the, where's the execution? No, but the whole point of a good Stephen is the range it affords. Yes, lovely. Yes. He's Ooh. not happy that it's not happening. I know, he's missed out on a good steaming and you just think, oh gosh. And the spectators just sit there chatting. I mean, you see, like, when it's it's obvious it's not going to happen, they're just all sitting there as if they're in the pub. Yeah. Sort of like, oh, yeah. I can only assume, as you say, that these people have got the money uh -huh. and are just they're able to just relax for all this time. Because yeah. everyone else is getting worked to death. Exactly. So, 
just let them do their thing, do their little rhubarbing in the corner. Mandrel says, I gave him more than two minutes. Well, yes, you did. You gave him about ten. Wow. <laughs> and there's a great description. He's a fish-blooded sadist, this clip. Yeah, there's yeah, a fish-blooded sadist. Yeah, the doctor's really... He's not met him yet, but he's got the measure of him. He really doesn't like what he's like. He, he really doesn't like him at all. He's, he's ready to face off with him now. The dialogue is just delicious. I mean, the director's yeah. so angry that he orders unpaid overtime. <laughs> hunched over the chair saying, I sense the vicious doctrine of elegatarianism, Cade. <laughs> what? <laughs> and he goes round yeah. and round in circles in his chair. He goes back to his base and he's just going round and round in circles. Oh, yeah, he's so he's agitated. This, he's this, so this animated. Energy is really animated. And he's got these green lips. You know, oh. it's got this bit. He's, oh. Yeah, such a real, an unpleasant sort of sweaty-looking character very sort of that sickly pallor and greenness there's there's it's 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 so well realized uh, i think it's 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 one of the one of the better villains of certainly of that year um in doctor who maybe not of all doctor who but of that year it's a real standout i don't think that the anxiety gas is replaced by laughing gas because then we have that if workers refuse to work nobody works today and everyone just starts laughing like uncontrollably for some yeah, reason a bit they're they're overly jolly, but then again, who knows? I mean, uh, <laughs> maybe maybe just a, a a withdrawal effect of <laughs> the PCM is suddenly you just find yeah. everything hilarious. It's just that they start laughing their heads off. It seems to me for no reason. They're like, "We're not going to work." Ha ha. Nobody works today. It's the tone Nobody they say it in. Nobody works today. Yeah, it's very. I find that one. That's a bit of a funny moment. The doctor hypnotizes a guard and. Leela goes to sleep as well, which is quite funny. Yeah, I mean, that, that happened a few times in Doctor Who. It's an old joke, I like it. Oh, yeah, always. it's always worth it. Just throw that in. Because, you know, you've got to appeal to the kids to a degree, and that much is, you know, it's one of those little laughs. And he's talking about the collector, and has a great line, like the imposition of a double-vision tax on people with more than one eye. Yeah, uh, yeah, the doctor's just got this measure. You know, this is how spiteful these people are. This is what they would go for. I always whisper when opening safes. So he's found the safe. He wants to break into the safe, the collector's safe, and uses the sonic screwdriver, gets in, and it's booby-trapped. And that's where you get this effect where Leela's oh. trapped by the force field and then collapses. And I think that is the bit where they were thinking, should we kill her off there? Uh -huh. Which, that just, I would have been so blunt and... No, it doesn't Yeah, I don't think it's quite worthy. I know that Louise Jameson, when she did leave the series, was unsatisfied with the ending that she had and thought that, you know, Leela being Leela, it probably should have been a noble sacrifice that she made to save yeah. the Doctor because that's the sort of thing that she would have done. She's willing to throw herself into battle and, and take those risks. The likelihood of her falling in love with somebody... With a wet lettuce from Gallifrey. Yeah, yeah. spontaneously... And deciding <laughs> to give up on this mad life of daring do that she has with the doctor, it just doesn't ring true. So you can understand that she her dissatisfaction at that, but equally, I think you, you would have to get it just right. It's a bit like because I know that, that a lot of people still dispute the killing off of Adric and especially the killing off of Perry for being, mm. you know, it's it's a family show. There's a lot of young people that are invested in these characters. Should you kill them off? But that's a that's a debate that I don't think will ever quite go away. I think um, of all the companions, Leela's perhaps the most likely that you would have expected because she puts herself yes. in these situations. Um, It'd be the most natural to have had a death. Yeah, uh, you feel that she maybe would have, you know, just 
crossed a line or made a mistake and lost her life in the process. But yeah, I think it would have been a bit too offhand, whatever they had. If 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 what they had in mind for the Sunmakers was her literally just throwing herself in like that, and that would have been a bit of a misstep. It would have been for a quite a a, a softly toned story. It's it's still got its bleak moments. That yeah. tonally would be very off. It just wouldn't. That would have been the worst. It wouldn't sit right since Dodo probably because that would have been so like out left field of oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, she's no dead now. She? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so I'm kind of glad. I'm I'm glad that they avoided that. It's a shame she still didn't get a brilliant send off two stories later. But no, definitely not. Uh, it is what it is. We have the brilliant piece now where Hade finds out from Barn that the work units have now gone to the roof, and he's so angry about this, he storms off even with his arms like folded. I'm going to go. How dare they? I'm going to go off and deal with him, uh, and goes up and and basically has a go at them. And they chuck him off the roof. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, he's so is it's his his righteousness and his pomposity, and he goes up there and he's pouting and he's got his you know, you're saying he's got his arms folded. Yeah, they just lift him up and chuck him <laughs> off the roof, and, and then uh, they laugh. Oh yeah, <laughs> they absolutely laugh at it. Oh, we'll, we'll do that to all the other ones as well, and they're just thinking, oh my goodness, these. I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure they should live without PCM. Maybe they're better off with the anxiety. Yeah, it's a bit sort of strange because they just become cackling hyenas, really. It's it's an uncomfortable leap. (laughs) So to speak. (laughs) It's the fact he even goes up on his own, so he's that arrogant. He doesn't even go up with Marn or anybody. He just goes up and, I'm going to speak on myself. They'll listen to me. Yeah, he doesn't bring his the inner retinue or anyone with him for backup. He thinks he's got enough going on for himself that he can he'll write this wrong. Famous last word to be who it is over the over the roof. The collector returns to his palace and finds obviously the doctor's sitting there. And he's so weasel like he's like, I am unarmed and is sucker up to him. And we find out all about that he's a Usiren and about the history of humanity was dying on Earth, so they moved them to Mars. And then when they exhausted Mars, his resources, they moved them all to Pluto. Spot in the background, it's the same box as the Ark in space. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's oh, very similar architecture. Oh, yeah, the, the Earth has died a few different ways in Doctor Who now. Um, but, but who knows, you know, where it fits into the timeline. You know, the, the Doctor does say that the Earth regenerated itself and it does it again in the Ark in space and it'll probably do it again in some other story. <laughs> And I love how he, the collector says, do you want to look at our prospectus? <laughs> He's got a prospectus. Uh, well, what's it going to be in it? You know, oh, yeah, we took over. We, we sucked dry planet Vortis 5 and we're just, we've moved oh, forward. He's constantly on the make. He's looking at the opportunity yeah. and going, oh, 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 a Time Lord. There might be there might be some uh, business in this. And I always chuckle when he presses the button and then the, the button pops out. Oh yeah, and it's the it's the comical sort of goon show twang of the yes. <laughs> <laughs> But it's wonderful the moment where the collector touches the doctor's hair. He's sitting there talking to him and then he gets fascinated by the fact that the doctor's got hair. Because he's oh, not yeah. looking at it. He's coveting the doctor's curls and that little it's yeah, little little flourishes like that. Not you don't always get those little touches from some of the guest casts. This is Henry Wolf giving it some thought, and yeah. you know the 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 tiniest little throwaway thing, um, but it's it's a smart little character touch, and I, I think it's brilliant. It's a neat little thing to do. 
from the blood-sucking leech. <laughs> a nice, a nice, delightful description. Yeah, blood-sucking leech. The doctor really doesn't like it. That's the Tom doing the slightly through through his teeth. You blood-sucking leech. And this is the bit where it was on the Tom Baker's tape. So when I come to think it, I, I would have seen this scene first before any the uh -huh. rest of some makers. It was on the Tom Baker's tape, uh -huh. um, which starts with "Wake up, wake up to the facts," and then of course the guard wakes up. Unless I say wake up, you're not going to wake up. <laughs> we get basically it's the collector panicking and completely now losing because the doctors put something into the system to make him bankrupt. Yes, he's he's done something clever, some computation or other that. Yeah, literal uh -huh. liquidation. Yes, and that just <laughs> he goes... <laughs> melts his wee brain. He melts his wee brain and he just goes as a green glow into the chair, in the natural form, and goes in the chair. I mean, does it's he stay the, in the chair? the voices he makes as he shrinks away and he's going... Branch is no longer viable. He goes into the chair and then they put the plug in. Into the little bit, into his little limbs. I wonder what happens to him. Little potty. He just stays in... Ah, he looks like he's just on inside the potty. He's, he's he plugged in in his potty in his liquid form. The people <laughs> are free. Oh, yeah, they're free and he's not. It's a very undignified yeah. ending for him. I just wonder what happened to him, whether they, with somebody chucks his chair over the, off the roof. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, the doctor says what the, the, that the Usurians look like um, sea came with eyes. You think maybe, maybe they made sushi out of him or something. I don't Ooh. know. Ooh. The doctor and Leela say farewell everyone back on the roof. And it's a really strange end in the story because the TARDIS starts to lurch and then he just apologises. And that's the end of the story. It's a very abrupt sort of ending, I thought. I quite like it, the fact that the Doctor's uh, undoing K-9's chess successes at the start of the story. It's the, oh, oh I'm so sorry, K-9, I'm so sorry. Yeah. But And then you just have K-9's funny noise that he makes of realisation that he's been had and that the TARDIS has been sent off kilter deliberately. It's that yeah. little, the noise that he makes. <laughs> so white noise he makes. Oh. Yeah. It's like, oh, dawning realisation from K9. <laughs> I just wonder what would have happened next on Pluto. I mean, they've all cackling hyenas. They've chucked guys off the roof. Uh -huh. What happens next? I mean, I'd wonder how they would get on. Um, yeah, I, I, I think they've obviously spent an awful lot of time uh, under the under the cosh and having dealt with these anxiety inducing gases, so the moment they don't have it, they throw people off roofs. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, I'm not sure that the Earth is going to be in safe hands with these people. No, I don't either. I mean, you can only imagine all the inner retinue and that were all got chucked off the roof. So the doctors basically oh. left them and thinking, right? Well, I, I guess he doesn't know what happened to Heed unless he asked. Privately, like, uh, what did you do to Heed? Oh, I chucked him off the roof. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the doctor's a bit blasé about that. I don't think he, he he doesn't normally stay to find out. No, he doesn't. How things work out, um, and he, he maybe maybe he, he should have said before he left, probably don't throw everyone off the roof. <laughs> yeah, just a bit yeah. of advice. I mean, it's not quite up there with John Pertwee's speech at the end of the Planet of the Daleks saying "Don't glorify war," but you know, could the the, the doctor could have said something like, I, "I I don't think anybody else should be killed now. <laughs> Let's bygone be bygones." <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting how they would get on. So you could imagine that if they manage to get some sort of society together, uh -huh. then they somehow get back to Earth. 
Yeah, no, no, yeah, they might. They're, they're going to be able to use their spaceships and get back to a regenerated Earth. How are they going to rebuild society? What, on what basis? They've all been given their responsibilities. They're not going to be able to ship everything from Pluto with them. Yeah, I'm thinking too hard about this now. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's it's one of these ones where it's. I was really intrigued uh, to see what would happen next. If there's been a uh, book or something, somebody tell me. Unless you know yourself, yeah. Mark. Not that I'm aware of, but maybe somebody, maybe somebody will have that idea one day. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I found about the Sunmakers was uh, the fake card that had it had green added to it. As Graham Williams was concerned, that it would look like a Bartley card. Yeah, because yeah, because it was just the yellow and blue initially, and he yeah. thought it was too it was too overtly like a like a like a Bartley card. With a little tiny strip of green on it, it still looks like a Barclay card. Yes. <laughs> Originally, when the gatherer was thrown off the roof, the mob were going to say, shut up, rubber guts, string the old swine up, chuck him over the edge, and let's see if old rubber guts bounces. Random. Uh, I think it's probably for the best that they didn't say these things. <laughs> Agreed. Rubber guts? Rubber guts, yeah. Gosh, ah, uh-huh. bit of a bit of a comment on his um, ample stature. <laughs> <laughs> the video effects designer wasn't happy with the effect shrinking the collector being pushed to the end of the studio session, and it prompted him to go freelance. Yeah, I'd so read annoyed. That. Yes, oh. so it was pushed to the end of the one of those. Right, we need to get it done in one minute. You have to do it now. Sort oh. of situations, and so yeah, he was like, "Stuff this for a game of soldiers, and I'll go freelance." Yeah, I don't blame him. I don't think it would be if you if you were a video effects designer, um, and you're at the sort of forefront of this era when it's taking off, and you're put under those sorts of pressures. You know, you you know it's going to take hours of lineup and planning, and maybe you need to pre-record, or you maybe do all those all the involvement and the things that it'll yeah. entail. And then they go, actually, it's ten to ten. How long do you think you need? And he goes, oh, well, I'll probably need fifteen minutes. You've got ten, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and no retakes. That would be really galling. I can understand why some have had enough. A scene was cut from part two, which showed three workers in a line. Cordo explained that they were waiting to be erased, saying, "It's their death day. When worker units become too sick or too old to meet their output quotas, their body material is redeployed. It's called business economy." And Leela apparently then said, "I call it murder." Oh. I can only assume they cut that out because it was maybe a tad too dark, but I think that would have been a nice bit to put in because it would have... That was a question I was asking watching it, was, oh. well, what happens when people, like, collapse or something and it sounds like they just oh. get they get executed? Well, it's a shame that scene's lost because I think that would have actually added something. You know, sometimes the, the elements that they maybe lose from a story, you don't gain much by having lost them. It is the extraneous stuff. Could have got rid of some other element, I'm sure, to have kept that in because it it it's all part of that world building. It makes a bit more sense of the how that economy and that that yeah. that whole civilization works. Australian censors, um, Australia, as I'm finding out, is very strict on the censor clips that they make, as we know from the sixties. Oh, yes. They cut out originally stuff the company from part one, but then it, when it was repeated, they put it back in. Yeah, it's, it's odd. I think it's um, it, it's quite telling how attitudes and censorship changes. You know, there's things that audiences and British audiences were exposed to on 60s Doctor Who that the Australians were absolutely against. Yeah, it, it is it's, interesting to see oh. what censors 
in different countries do. I mean, you mm. see it with films. Some of the clips, some of the things I've read about, like cuts that have been made to films or banned films that have been banned. Uh -huh. And some of them are really head scratching. Mm. Um, and I think this is sort of in that category because stuff the company is that really a that vital line. Uh -huh. Who knows? You know what? What you know depends on the censor as much as anything as well. There's some things that get through the sort of the 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 BBFC when they're doing their censorship and things like that that historically when you look at the records it's quite funny because there's things that other censors who then come in and said i would i would have let that pass or vice versa there's others that come in and say oh my goodness stuff the company you couldn't possibly have a line like that and it's just because of stuffiness that they just you know yeah final thoughts on the sunmakers mark like i said i have come to respect it more than i i went i went into it initially slightly trepidatious thinking how am i going to talk about this story what is there to talk about and actually, there's a lot more going on than I fully realised. Um, and one thing that we've not even touched on at all, Dudley Simpson's score. Oh, yes. I, I think it's that. a shame. It's one of his, I think it's one of his better ones. Um, if people say by the Graham Williams era, maybe he should have gone. But actually, I think he delivers a great score in this from the off the it first Malt scene Ricardo. It's really, really strong. Um, it's a great score. There's, there's, there's a lot more going for this tale than people would give credit for. I think this score is one of the few that remains like in its pure form for Douglas Simpson, yeah. I believe. Yeah, I, I think they've released it, haven't they? They have, yeah. I think I, th I don't I don't think there's more than a couple of complete Dudley Simpson scores out there. There's there's bits here and there that are at the end of recording tapes and dubbing tapes and things like that. But this is about the only one that exists in its in entirety. Um and it's great, even listening to it out of context, there's some really lovely music cues in it, um, and it sounds very different to a lot of the other scores that surround it. So some people claim that his stuff sounds really samey by this stage in this, the show, but I think I, I beg to differ when it comes to scores like The Sunmakers or The Stones of Blood the following year. He's oh, still, Stones of Blood score's great, yeah. Yeah, he's still able to really pull it out, and I think when he works with a director or visuals that really inspire him you get a great score from Dudley Simpson regardless I love the Sunmakers now I, mean, yeah. I, I can now appreciate the intelligence of the script <laughs> um, and obviously I think being older you can relate like being house owners and that you can relate much more to the subject matter <laughs> perhaps than when I was a kid I hadn't seen this one for quite a few years uh -huh. um, The Collector is brilliant Cade is <laughs> wonderful in OTT um, I guess I had a masterpiece actually in this season it's much of my line it's a season that not many people speak favorably about but i think this is a little gem hiding in there i get I, I would absolutely agree with you i think it's probably one of the standout ones of that that year it's i think image of the fendal gets a lot more praise than it deserves i think the Sunmakers is probably probably better as a fully formed piece i think other people look at image of the fendal for example and hold it higher because it's it's a bit like a Hinchcliffe hangover. Yeah, I I would have been one of these people. I'll be interested when I get to the image what mm. I think of that one. Yeah, that might well be the case. Yeah, it can be. I mean, it, again, it's it's all down to personal opinion. But I would definitely put the Sunmakers on over Image of the Fendal, for example. I think I think you know for me the Sunmakers is an enter is more entertaining. Stick out moment. Well, it's definitely not the K nine K nine K nine. <laughs> um, oh gosh, I should have thought of one of these. What was what would be a standout moment from the story? 
Let me think. Let me ponder. <laughs> okay. Um, I think mine would be to start line from the collector about I have a feeling of John satisfaction. I just love him. <laughs> yeah, he's absolutely thrilled about it. It's all it's great. Um I think a standout moment for me is probably quite early on in the story. And it's just the I think it's the forging of that TARDIS team. It's so bizarre seeing I still, it still feels quite novel to me to see Leela K9 and the Fourth Doctor together. I don't know why, but seeing them together, having a little TARDIS scene together, this this okay. now, a little forged TARDIS, it, it just stands out for me. I think I think when you see certain dynamics, it feels a bit odd. If it's one, it's not a TARDIS team that had a lot of time together. So for me, it's like I mean, I, I watched the King's Demons the other night. It still oh, feels like a new <laughs> Peter Davison story to me because it's the one that I've seen least it feels it's so it's an odd one and it's i think it's the slightly strange feeling about seeing leela k9 and the fourth doctor because it's not my immediate go-to tardis team yeah yeah but it's one that i i still have a lot of affection for but they were only together for a very short period three four stories total yeah, that's right well thank you very much but great going through the sun makers where can the listeners find you um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's Mark underscore Dodik. It's spelled D-O-D-Y-K. And similarly, you can find me on Instagram and it's just Mark Dodik. It's all one word, all lowercase. But um, thank you very much for having me, Dave. It's been a delight. Oh, it's been a pleasure. You've also done other podcasts. You've been on Trap One. You've been on the Hampshire Blunt Penknife. Uh-huh. Somehow or other. <laughs> no, because I've enjoyed your, the ones you've been on. Um, you thank did. You. You managed to do Cage Androzani on Hamster with a Pen Knife, which I was really jealous about, but <laughs> it's really good. Uh, yes, I'm not sure what possessed me to say I would do that one. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the best Doctor Who story ever, in my opinion. But uh, <laughs> hopefully I can tempt you to do uh, another one at a later yes, stage. Yes, we shall see what the randomizer has in store for us. Yes. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll see you in a couple of weeks because we're going to, both going to Utopia, aren't we? Yeah, Utopia cometh. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be there next month. But uh, yeah. I'll just say thanks again, Mark, and until uh, next time. Thank you very much. Till then. <laughs>